Welcome to the Navigating Hollywood podcast. My name is Alan Wolf, and I'm a filmmaker, author, and game creator. Navigating Hollywood encourages and equips entertainment professionals to live relationally and spiritually holistic lives. If you work in entertainment, be sure to visit navigatinghollywood.org to discover the complimentary courses and see how you can get involved. Today, we're doing something a little different for the show. Normally, I interview people who work in entertainment about their journeys, but today, I'm the one who will be interviewed. I recently appeared on the Autistic Me podcast to talk about my upcoming movie, The Sound of Violet. The movie is a romantic dramedy about a man who believes he found his perfect soulmate, but his autism keeps him from realizing she's actually a prostitute. In this podcast, I talk about the creation of the movie and how I approached the challenge of portraying someone who is autistic, my filmmaking experiences, and a lot more. A special thank you to The Autistic Me for allowing us to republish the podcast here. Stay tuned. I think you'll enjoy the discussion. Hello and welcome to the Autistic Me podcast. I am Christopher Scott Wyatt, speaking as the Autistic Me. I anticipate receiving some heated messages in response to this episode. I still receive complaints for commenting on Mark Haddon's novel, The Curious Incident of the Dog in the Nighttime, and its theatrical adaptation. Depictions of autistic characters in books and on screen are frequently debated within the autism community and neurodiversity movement. Historically marginalized groups pay close attention to representations of their experiences. As a writer, I have faced criticism for dramatizing the experiences of women, minorities, and, well, pretty much any character that people assume isn't like me. I have even been criticized for writing about social class and disabilities. Marie Calloway, who identifies as an Aspie writer, was widely criticized for depicting sex work in her 2013 novel, what purpose did I serve in your life? Helen Wang's 2018 The Kiss Quotient received largely positive media coverage, yet some autistics criticized the novelist for her plot. Stella, the math whiz, hires Michael, the escort, to learn about dating and romance. Of course, Wang's autism was hotly debated in some online spaces. Apparently, even if you are autistic, creating a story featuring an autistic character will offend someone. And so I appreciate filmmaker, novelist, and game creator Alan Wolf for joining us on the Autistic Me podcast. Wolf's debut novel, The Sound of Violet, follows Sean, a young autistic computer programmer intent on dating and finding romance. Wolf also wrote, directed, and produced the movie adaptation of The Sound of Violet scheduled for a 2022 release. Wolf also hosts the Navigating Hollywood podcast. Give it a listen. I have. It's wonderful. And so, welcome to the podcast, Alan. Thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it. So, let's just start with the difficult question. Yes, bring it on. I feel like you're welcoming me into a buzzsaw with that introduction. (laughs) It is a difficult position to write about anything. Yes. <laughs> I let's let's get that on the table right now. I've written a, a number of plays that have been performed and it never it never ceases to amaze me. Someone is offended by some character that I wrote because mm. I'm not that character. Mm, right. So, why did you choose to write with a main character who is autistic? 
Well, I chose two big topics with this story, two big issues. One is autism, the other is human trafficking. Both have a lot of challenges in terms of portraying them accurately. When I was first creating the story, I created the character, and I think part of being an artist, a writer, is that as you're writing, as you're creating, sometimes the story and the characters reveal things to you that you maybe don't expect when you start off on that project. It makes me think of when I was in Italy seeing some of Michelangelo's work, and he talks about how he takes a slab of marble, and as he chips away at it, that the sculpture inside reveals itself. And so I think sometimes that happens as we're writing stories as well. So when I set off to write the story initially, it was based upon my own challenges with dating and connecting to women in Los Angeles. And I had a real challenge connecting and I didn't have a lot of experience. And so it was not an easy phase of my life. So I that was the basis of the character originally. But as I wrote it, and as I did research, at one point, I realized, oh, I think this character is actually autistic. And I realized, as I did more research, that it really brought depth and richness to the character as I was able to draw that out. And I, I have a relative who's autistic. I hired a consultant whose husband is autistic to make sure that what I was writing was very authentic. And then when we filmed the movie, I mean, multiple people who are autistic read through the screenplay. And then we had people on the set. We had people behind the, the scenes working so that we just wanted to make it as accurate as possible. And my hope is that people who read the story and see the movie, that they find the character honorable. I mean, they find the character, he's unique in his qualities and who he is, but he's ultimately a very compelling and honorable character. I went through a similar route, I said, with trafficking, because, you know, what you mentioned with the kiss quotient about the autistic man who hires a prostitute to show him what love is all about. The actual first version of this screenplay was similar to that, and it had the Hollywood, oh, empowered prostitute who knows everything about love. That was her character. And as I started to research it, I realized, oh, wow, like these women, the majority of them are being trafficked and are doing this against their will. And for the small minority who are saying, no, I'm doing this because I'm empowered. I want to do this on my own. The majority of them, if not all of them, I mean, it's stunning when you read the statistics, experience some kind of broken, sexual brokenness, rape, abuse when they were very young. And it brings up the question, are they really doing this out of their own empowerment? So that opened my eyes to trafficking. And so in the process of creating the story, I, it, it took all kinds of twists and turns. But for me, I love the journey because... It helped me to see trafficking and autism through a new lens. And that's my hope for, for the audience who views it as well. And I don't want the main character, the main character for The Sound of Violet, his name is Sean. And I never intended him to be an archetype for autistic people. Every autistic person, as you know, is unique and different. And I wanted the qualities that Sean has as an autistic person to be, there is some that maybe other neurodiverse people could relate to. He has trouble reading social cues. He can experience sensory overload. 
he can have trouble communicating interpersonally. So maybe people can relate to that, but I know some people can't. But he also has issues that most autistic people don't have. He has synesthesia, where he's able to hear sounds and colors. And that's something a small minority of autistic people experience. But he also is very trusting. And he trusts when he meets this woman, she tells him that she's an actress and she, he believes her. And that's why he's, she's able to kind of fool him with wh- what she really does for a living. But he also has a naivete that's not true for autistic people, maybe a minority of them as well. But that for in the story, it's because his grandmother really raised him in a sheltered way. He's also sensitive to touch. It can be overwhelming to him. But I know that's not true for most of neurodiverse people that, that I meet. But for him, he had a different journey. And he later becomes learns how to desensitize himself from that. So all that's to say that I, I hope that people can appreciate the character, but not look at every quality that the character has as me saying, oh, this is true of every autistic person. One of the approaches that some authors and screenwriters have taken is to have a character but not state openly that the character is autistic or on the autism spectrum. You choose to have the character confront the question, are you on the spectrum, early in the book. One of his outings, that is a question that is asked, are you on the spectrum? So that is forefronted in this book, unlike some of the other works where it's implied or suggested, but not stated explicitly. Hmm, interesting. When I was testing the novel and people were reading it, that became an issue that people didn't understand the choices that he was making. They didn't understand his character and they didn't have a lot of empathy for him. They couldn't connect to him. So I found that once they understood some of his background and his history, that changed the experience for the person reading it. In the movie, you actually find out much later than in the book. In the movie, you see him dating and you see it not going the way that he wants it to go. And then you essentially find out at the same time as Violet finds out in the movie. So I chose to reveal it later. And it all has to do with just testing it with audiences and just seeing what works best in terms of the storytelling. Did you first prepare the screenplay or the novel? Well, it's a funny story because I, <laughs> I first created a screenplay, then I adapted it into the novel. But in the process of creating the novel, the story changed so dramatically that I then ended up creating another screenplay based on the novel. And then I created another novel based on that screenplay. <laughs> so it's been through a few different transformations. But what people can ultimately can read now, The Sound of Violet, that is available wherever people get books, is the version that has been influenced by the experience of making the movie. And then the movie was ultimately influenced by the first story that I created, and then the novel that came after that. When I talk to aspiring writers, one of the things that I I try to communicate is, you can tell the same basic plot in a lot of ways. I can tell this story as a a novel or a short story, as a movie or as a TV uh, show, as a musical or a Broadway play, and the medium is going to 
alter the story. There is no question that with a movie, you are looking at maybe 90 to 100 pages of script. You have to pare down the number of characters. You have to sometimes merge characters. As a professor who, who deals with this, I try to say neither is better, but they are different. And you have to choose how you're going to economize for the screen. Along the way, you economized in a lot of ways. Location, you, you adjusted the location. You adjusted some of the character traits. So could you speak to how you had to adjust to make the film be the best film possible instead of trying to make it a perfect representation of the novel? It's a challenge. And part of the challenge is making a movie is so brutally expensive. <laughs> so every, every final minute that you've created costs a tremendous amount of money. So you really have to think, okay, how can I create something that does the best job it can at synthesizing what the novel is all about? But yet, as you said, just staying as authentic as possible. So for me, I enjoyed resetting the novel to Seattle. It made sense for a number of reasons. It is a city that experiences a lot of human trafficking, so that made sense. And then there's a park called Gasworks Park that used to be a an old processing plant. And then it was abandoned. It sat there for a while. Everyone thought it was useless. And then they transformed it into this beautiful park that people now love. Well, that's a symbol in the movie. It represents that we need second chances, that people need second chances, that things that people often overlook and maybe don't value can be beautiful and you can see them from a brand new perspective. And that's true of really, I think, both our lead characters. In the novel, that's true of the High Line, which is a park in New York City that used to be abandoned railroad tracks. They thought it was useless. They turned it into a beautiful park. So I, I needed to first make sure that everything that made the story work really well in New York would translate to Seattle. And then after that, you just have to go through and figure out what is going to be the most compelling what is going to move the story forward as fast as possible? Because in a novel, you can go into people's inner thoughts and you can linger there. But when you're watching on screen, what's happening on screen, it's all about the actors and the nuanced performances and what's happening with their characters. So it's a very different process. But I'm super happy with how it turned out. And sometimes, you, you'll find even when you're in the editing room that you're making even more changes. And in some ways, when you first make the movie, that's the first time you're making the movie. But the second time you're making the movie is in the editing process, because then you're seeing things you didn't see before. You're creating moments that maybe you didn't intend or weren't there to begin with. But when you look at the footage, you realize, oh, this would be a really nice moment. It's a kind of a grueling process. It's not easy. But I'm really happy with how it turned out. The character, Sean, the first relationship we really get a sense of is that with his brother. And it is my experience that many of the autistics first and sometimes only close social connection is with a sibling. Mm. You did a really interesting job creating a brother who 
is both supportive and in some ways pushing Sean. Could you talk about that relationship, which it really stood out to me before we, we meet Violet. It really stands out to me, that sibling relationship. Yeah, his brother is named Colin in the book, and he really looks after Sean. I mean, I think every character in novels and movies, usually they start off one way and they go through a growth process during the movie that that takes them into a new direction. So Colin at the beginning is a protective brother, but almost to the point of being too protective. And he is always concerned with Sean. I think that because he's seen Sean being hurt in the past, he is afraid for Sean being in a situation where he'll get hurt again. So part of his growth process is being able to not only let go, but also encourage Sean toward making different choices and making little, taking little steps of risk socially, relationally to put himself out there. He's not he does not approve of Violet when he sees them together. He suspects something is off with her by the way he, she dresses, by the way she acts. He doesn't know what it is, but he just feels like something is very wrong. And so he is at the same time coming alongside Sean, wanting to help him to dress differently, to get out more. You know, he takes him to some uh, dating mixers. But they really do have a strong bond, which in the book you get to explore more than in the movie, which I suppose is always the case. But I did want to create a family unit that's really Sean, Colin, and their grandmother, who's really helped raise them. So the three of them are a family now. But both his brother, Colin, and his grandma, Ruth, have leaned toward protecting Sean, being concerned for Sean. And during the course of the story, they really start trusting his choices and coming alongside him and supporting him in a a whole new way. Sean's place of employment, setting aside for a moment that it is a, a dating app platform, the work experience is one that a lot of autistics have written about. Adult autistics have written about the sense of alienation, Mm-hmm. having their own space, being the object of verbal and emotional bullying. Mm-hmm. In the early parts of the novel, it is very clear that his co-workers accept him as a programmer, but not as a fully realized collaborator and person. How did you capture that work experience and what did you bring into it? Because it is very similar to the experiences that autistics write about in their memoirs. I mean, I think the challenge for any of us when we're in a new work environment is connecting to the people there, feeling like you're part of the work culture. But from the conversations that I've had with people who are autistic, as you said, that can sometimes be a challenge if people aren't appreciating your own unique qualities that you're bringing to the workplace. So it's similar here in that. People tolerate him and they like, they, they kind of, they like him. He's a nice guy, but they don't invite him to the after hours socials that they have. And they don't really truly understand who he is because they, you know, they're all busy. They all have busy lives. They all just want to do what's easy and they all want to judge people and put people 
into categories. So that's just like the main characters go through a journey of figuring out how to grow and how to really celebrate how someone is different from you. The workplace, that's the challenge for the workplace as well. So I don't want to give away too much in the book or movie, but <laughs> there is a process that his coworkers go through that I hope will be inspiring for people as they read the book, as they see the movie. Because typically in stories, when you start off in the story, everything is broken. I mean, people are not in great places. There's some tension, maybe something really bad has happened. And then the story is all about kind of fixing that and making it better. So I wanted to do that in multiple areas of his life, including his workplace. I hope it doesn't give away too much, but Sean, as a programmer, he's an, a specialist in algorithms. And my oldest daughter is diagnosed autistic, and I obviously have the diagnoses. And we both use checklists and flowcharts to get through interactions and days. I have a script here, you know, reminding me what to bring up during the interview. I have a script when I go in and teach, and, and my students know that. So he approaches everything as a mathematical problem in some ways. He's valued for that. And yet at the same time, his workplace doesn't always want to use his algorithm. Right, right. This is a very mixed signal when you're an autistic and someone's saying, we really appreciate your work, but we're not going to use it. It's too good. Hmm. I, I thought it was fascinating that he's trying to refine this dating algorithm. And at the same time, his revisions keep getting rejected. Right, right, right. That feels so much like life. <laughs> no. If life only went the way we would like it to go. <laughs> and that's some of the frustration. I mean, not only that he has, and perhaps as you're saying, that autistic people could, folks can have, but it's just a reality of any workplace where we just don't get things don't happen the way that we hope will happen. And he has, in, in the story, Sean does have conflicts with his boss. His boss gets really impatient with him. And his boss has his own ideas of how he wants things to go, what he wants the results to be. And then Sean's own experience with dating and relationships ultimately impacts how he wants the algorithm to work as well. That is part of his journey. One of the questions that a writer has to ask is, why? What is the motivation for this character's pursuit? Part of me still wonders why Sean is so set on dating and romance. Hmm. From the first page, it's clear that's what's going wrong. You know, why is he aspiring to his family, seeing him as a married adult male? Why does he associate that with growing up? For two reasons. The first is he has long romanticized that and thought that will fill something inside of him. I mean, his own family, his own mom and dad didn't have the kind of relationship that he really wants to have. I mean, they at one point just gave up parenting him and his brother. That's why they moved and they're with the grandmother now. That's mentioned in the movie. It goes into more detail in the book. But I think because of the brokenness that he experienced in that part of his life, 
that he didn't see that going the way that he had hoped. I think he has always thought, oh, if I can get that part right, then I think life is going to turn out okay. Like, I think, I think that will be a really good thing. So he, you know, he just started getting, a, he just started really focusing on marriage, on weddings. I mean, he keeps pictures of weddings that he finds online around his desk. His grandma gives him pictures of weddings that she prints out for him. <laughs> she just knows it makes him happy. He thinks about the wedding he wants to have one day. But I think at the core, it's because he thinks that's going to make him happy. And he's seen other people around him be happy who are married. And he didn't see that kind of happiness in his own life. So he thought, oh, if I can just do that, but do it right, then maybe my life will turn out differently. He also has grown up, as I mentioned before, in a sheltered environment where his grandma I think this is just like a little too much for him at times. And so I think he genuinely is afraid of being in the world without his grandma, without having some kind of support there to take care of him, to show him what he should do and not do. I think part of him thinks, oh, I need to find someone that I can be with for the rest of my life who will have that same function that my grandma does. And I think that motivation is a little bit more buried for him but i think it's something that pushes him along i'm trying to limit what i'm saying too because i don't want to take out the enjoyment of you know the book and what people discover so i won't tell you how that's all resolved but to answer your question i think those are really the two key motivating factors that have created that fascination for him and that just extreme desire I mean, I know people, we all know people who are, are single and they really, they do think, they think, oh, I just need to, get, whether they're autistic or not, they just think, I just need to get married. So they are just constantly going on dates. They're meeting people. There's nothing unique about that for Sean, but with Sean in particular, he's taken it like maybe one step further. I think idealizing what marriage is and idealizing what a relationship is. I've been working on the, the sequel to the book in my spare time. and. That's really about the marriage and what happens because as much as he has been idealizing what's happened, like what does happen if and when he gets married, what, what's that going to be like? And that's what I explore in the, in the second book. Let's talk a little bit about Violet. She is obviously the title of the book is a reference to her in some ways. She is often the voice of wisdom. What led you to create her character, and how did you avoid turning it into the common trope of the respectful prostitute, you know, the savior? We know that pretty woman is out there. We know that this is a, a common literary device. How did she come into being as a literary and, and filmic creation? What do you see as, as the core of her character? In the original incarnation of the story, she really did reflect, I think, m more how our culture sees prostitutes in the movies. And as I researched it and learned more about trafficking, I realized how unrealistic that portrayal is. And in movies, often we either see the empowered prostitute, like in Pretty Woman, 
or we see people caught up in really terrible circumstances like in Eastern Europe or you know something involving chains and basements i mean really really terrible situations and in a way i think it's it's easier to portray those two different types because i think they're easier for us to classify and put into a certain category but as i researched trafficking i realized through the stats that how scary the situation is with trafficking i mean there are more people enslaved today than at any other time of our history. And it's happening in every city, from the teeniest, tiniest cities to the largest cities. No matter where your listeners are living, if you just Google your city and human trafficking, (laughs) you will be very surprised at what comes up. You'll find resources to help survivors. And you'll think, wow, in my city, that's amazing. So that was eye-opening for me. And I worked with two organizations that help rescue people from trafficking situations who help people who survive trafficking. And I had them read the story and give me feedback. That was extremely helpful for me. And one of the organizations helps women overseas to come up with a new trade after they've been rescued. And the trade that they train them in is jewelry. So they created most of the jewelry that is featured in the movie. And that was really, really special to me and the people in the movie. The actor who portrays the main character, Sean, is himself a product of uh, a victim of trafficking. His mom was trafficked and he is an orphan because of that. So he came to that role with a very unique perspective on on the impact of trafficking and and I remember I didn't know this about him until after I cast him in the role the re- he didn't want to tell me during the casting process so that it wouldn't give him a, a leg up but he said that the story itself and the way that it portrays trafficking and it gives hope is what really got him excited in portraying that role and being part of it I'm hoping that when people read the story when they see the movie that it makes them want to do something about trafficking and stopping trafficking. I mean, I, I give the the website, thesoundofviolet.com, comes on at the end of the movie. And it's also at the end of the book because on that site, I have a link where if people are being trafficked, they can get help. And people can also contact local organizations, no matter where they live, internationally or in the U.S., to support those organizations and see how they can come alongside what they're doing. You're planning to release the movie in 2022. And will that be released uh, theatrically? Or are we looking at, unfortunately, in in this situation, uh, COVID, are we looking at an online release? It is going to be in theaters. And we will soon announce the date. I know the date that, that it's supposed to be coming out, but it's just too early for me to say. It might have something to do with Autistic Pride Month, as I like to call it. Yeah, it will be coming early 2022. If people go to any of the websites, thesoundofviolet.com, morningstarpictures.com, you can sign up to get updates on what's happening with the film and when it will be released. But it will be released only in theaters. What we are doing, though, before the movie is released is I'm partnering with organizations that fight trafficking to do private sneak preview screenings to raise funds for 
their organizations. So that will be happening in, in early 22 leading up to the release. And I'm also open, by the way, if anyone's listening and works with an organization that is a nonprofit that has to do with autism, I'm open to doing fundraising screenings for those organizations as well. So feel free to contact me <laughs> through the website. But right now, it's, it's all been organizations that fight trafficking. For those of us who work in theater and film, the entertainment industry, this pandemic has just been devastating. I am wondering, did that make it even more difficult for an independent film to seek screening? It did. The film was supposed to come out last year and everything got pushed. I mean, theaters were closed. There was no way it was going to come out last year. But the pandemic has definitely pushed the release of the film. I wanted it to be a theatrical experience for people. I wanted people to see it in the theater. It's a very, it's a communal experience. During the test audience screenings, I was so, it was so wonderful to see it with an audience who laughed, who cried, who just responded in the room. And it just brings a whole different experience to watching the film. We filmed it very cinematically. It's, we filmed it in widescreen. And so that was always my hope from the beginning. And I've had filmmaker friends who, whose films went, ended up going to Netflix instead of theaters during the pandemic. And that's great because Netflix has such a wide reach. And we could also do something with Netflix at some point. But for me, I, I first want people to experience it in the theater. My hope is that it's not only just a film and a story, but it's also a movement. We had, when we did test screenings, the majority of the audience said that the film helped them to understand and appreciate autism and human trafficking in a new way. And so my hope is that it's not just something that comes out, everyone watches it and moves on with their lives, but it's really something that creates conversations, that creates movements, and really binds people together, like brings people together around these two issues. Because I feel like in our culture, the more that we are talking and communicating and coming alongside each other, the more that we can move positive things forward. The title does refer to both the sound of Violet as the character that Sean meets, Violet. And it does refer to his synesthesia, which is comorbid with his autism. It is, I think, handled very well in the book. Thanks. It is interesting to me as I have, a, I have color aversions, which is not quite the same as synesthesia. Uh, certain colors cause me physical pain. And it's very hard to explain that colors are more than visual input for some people. Those inputs are complicated. I appreciate that you, you tackled that because there are a lot of comorbidity uh, situations for autistics. Comorbid conditions can range from being most commonly prone to seizures like epilepsy, but they also include things like synesthesia, dyslexia, ADHD. The idea that autism is alone is actually very rare. Most autistics have another diagnosis of something neurological. So they always have these extra neurological burdens that we're trying to overcome. So I really appreciate that it's not just Sean's autistic, but he's, he's autistic and he's clearly neurodivergent in multiple ways. 
Right. So that's that I think is an accurate depiction for many of us is mm. we're not just autistic, we are other complicated neurologies too. <laughs> right. <laughs> Yeah, and I I appreciate that about Sean's character as well. He is existing as any neurodivergent person is existing in a neurotypical dominated world that has created certain culture, certain rules, certain unwritten rules, <laughs> nonverbal rules. And my hope is that people can come out of the book in the movie with a new appreciation for people who might not be the same as them, who might think differently, who might see the world differently. And I really believe that if we can have that kind of appreciation for each other, that we're making our friendships, our world, our community a much better place. I want to thank you for taking a moment to discuss the film and book, The Sound of Violet, with me. All of the links, uh, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, all of that will be in the show notes. But I get to take a little bit of a side trip for five minutes. <laughs> you became interested in filmmaking at a young age. Yes. Growing up in Ohio. And now you are in Los Angeles. That path to me in your biography was, it was fun to read. <laughs> As someone who has always loved media and I love what I do. In my show notes, what I put down was I really looked at your, your bio as from Legos to Los Angeles. Care to comment on, on that <laughs> summation of your journey? It's a lot more complicated than that. But. I love it. Well, I remember when the Lego movie was coming out, I thought I already made the Lego movie when I was in seventh grade. What? They took my idea. But yes, you're really talking about the very first film that I did was animated with Lego figures, and it had a complicated sci-fi plot to it. And I think that growing up, I created stories to understand and deal with the world around me, really, in an artistic way. Like, how can I process through and come up with stories that I'm disconnecting with that, that are helping me to experience life? And be an outlet for creativity. So that was my first film was about two Lego figures who discovered a magical crystal that helped them to travel through time and space. <laughs> and then after that, I kept creating more films that continued in their complexity and their, you know, world building and their plots. And then from there, I went to New York University and studied film and then eventually came out to Los Angeles. So it's been quite a journey. But my Ohio days, I have very fond memories of growing up in Ohio. My community was very supportive of me. Uh, I remember in high school, I think it was my junior year of high school, it was when I was filming a feature length film. And the school principal was so supportive. His name was Frank Spolrich. And he let me film in his office. Actually, he played, I cast him as the main villain. And he was the main villain for a waste management company. That was the, the evil corporation was waste management company. And then the board of education that had this huge building, I'll never forget this. They let me transform their sign out front into 
a waste management sign because that's what we needed for for the <laughs> the scenes that we were filming. And we so we we did the art decoration and transformed the sign so it no longer said the Board of Education. It now said Patchwell Waste Management. And then I had to leave it up for several days because we, we weren't able to film on time. We had to come back to it and film some more scenes. And they were totally for it. The superintendent let me film in his offices. I mean, people all over the city were super supportive. And actually, uh, a woman, Julia Reichert, who has won multiple Academy Awards, she teaches out of Wright State University there. And she was also very supportive of me and what I was doing at that age in my life. And I was able to ask her questions on how to do certain things just as a junior high kid and then as a high school kid. And then I actually started my film studies in Ohio at that school before I transferred to New York University. Yeah. And then I premiered films there. You know, my last film I showed there. And then even the short that I did at NYU called Harlem Grace, I had a premiere and a special party at the Neon Movies, which is the independent theater in Dayton, Ohio. So lots of great memories there. And even when the film comes out theatrically next year, part of my plan is a Q&A night in Dayton will open in Seattle, LA, will open in multiple cities, but I'm planning on flying between those cities to have premiere parties and to see people and do Q&As and make it a big celebration. And Dayton is on that list. <laughs> I am a, a USC alumni and USC and NYU are always arguing about who has the better film school. <laughs> so true. <laughs> and you often they tie, I don't know if you noticed this, but like US News and World Report will often feature both of them as the number one film school just to get around that. <laughs> and they list number three. <laughs> but the experience of NYU is very different. I have friends who went there, and the, the benefit of NYU is you are in New York. You're in, whether USC wants to admit it or not, New York is a character. Mm. New York is a character. And that opened doors for you just by being in what is the entertainment capital of the world. I, don't, I know LA wants to think of itself that way, but the early history of film is in New York early history of animation with the Fletcher brothers. The early history of the Warner brothers was in Western PA. So you have that great history. And that's my way of leading to the fact that you worked with Tribeca, I believe. Tribeca Productions, Robert De Niro's production company. Right. Yes. As an intern? Yes. You're not going to be able to do that in Los Angeles. Right. It's so true. I mean, I had some unique experiences. I worked with Nancy Tenenbaum, who produced Meet the Parents and produced Steven Soderbergh's first film, uh, Sex, Lies, and Videotape. She actually, when I went to her office for the first time as an intern, she thought I was Steven Soderbergh. She's like, oh, what? Why, did you, why are you here? What are you doing here? I, we had some physical characteristics that made us look very similar for a period of time. I actually met Stephen at an event and told him that story and he laughed. But we now there is some kind of similarities between us, but I, not as much as there used to be. But I did love New York. It's very character shaping. You are constantly on the go and you're surrounded by art and culture and all kinds of ethnicities all the time, all kinds of food, museums, experiences. 
so I think as an NYU student, it was awesome in that regard. And we would have amazing people come and show us their films. The Coen brothers came more than once. And even my when I premiered my NYU senior thesis film, I did a premiere at a big movie theater there and they bought tickets. <laughs> I invited them and they bought tickets. So uh, you just get a, a real support from people who are based in New York, who are New York filmmakers. I think for USC, what you get, which is different, is a whole lot of networking that with New York, they, you know, people, some people stay in New York and become more like indie filmmakers, but a lot of people end up moving to Los Angeles because there's just, that's really where all the agencies are, the vast majority of the production companies, the studios are all out here. So while there's a lot of filming that happens in New York, the decision-making tends to be more often in a place like Los Angeles. So I do think that USC folks perhaps got a little bit more of an advantage in terms of grow, you know, networking with people that then stay here. And so you don't have to track them across the US. But NYU has done a great job with their alumni having events at places like Sundance, South by Southwest, where they give you chances to just mingle with other alumni and create new connections. So I appreciate that about them. My parting question for you. Yes. I don't believe I know anyone who has written as much at Disneyland <laughs> as you have. What is it about Disney that inspires you to sit and write at Disneyland? Well, I tracked my productivity between writing at home and writing at Disneyland. And I discovered that I wrote two to three times more at Disneyland. So I had an annual pass and I would go to Disneyland and I would, I have my favorite spots to sit and write in the park. And I would just write a whole lot of pages and it was nice because then when I'm hungry, I would just get something to eat so I wouldn't have to do dishes or figure out what am I going to eat. So it just kind of streamlined the process. And it was an inspiring place because it's also rooted in story. Everything around you has some kind of story connection or it inspires your imagination. I remember once when I was working on the screenplay for The Sound of Violet that I was on a park bench. And the Mad Hatter, Alice and the Queen came up because it's kind of unusual. You don't really see people on their laptops at Disneyland. And so they, he asked me in his Mad Hatter voice, what are you doing? And I said, I'm working on a screenplay. And so he's like, oh, you know, let's read this screenplay. So then he <laughs> read one part, Alice read the next part, and then a whole crowd formed. And then uh, at the end of it, the Queen held her nose to tell me that it stunk, you know, because that's her character. And I said, well, everyone's a critic. But I thought it was hilarious that here are characters created by Lewis Carroll many years ago in England, and they have not only been in multiple shows, TV shows, movies, but now they're physically here, come to life, actually reading a story and interacting with me. I mean, where else does that happen? So it's interesting because it's so unusual for people to be there 
other than to enjoy the park and to ride rides. But I had been going there to write and uh, and it was a really fun and great experience. I haven't done it in a while. With now, I have a family now, and uh, now when we go, it's really with the kids. And but uh, but yeah, I have very fond memories of my experiences riding in the park. I always had the annual pass too. It's just a it's a wonderful place to escape. Mm. You just walk around and watch people. Mm. You can oh, learn totally. A- You've yeah. learned so much about people and family dynamics at Disney. Oh my gosh. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> good, good and bad. <laughs> yeah, it's funny. People often, when they would hear that I write at Disneyland, they would say, oh, do you have an annual pass? Which I always thought was a funny question because how would I go all these hundreds of times if I didn't have an annual pass? So I would say to them, oh, "What? there are annual passes? I mean, I, I would you know, joke, I've been spending a fortune going there just to write but yeah, so <laughs> I really thank you for having this conversation with me. And unfortunately, we just don't have enough time to talk about everything you do. I will throw out there that Alan has also created a number of games. One that my children saw me looking at was Pet Detectives. It's a card game. It's targeted at families. He has. It looks like you have created at least five games that are out there. Yes, that's impressive. He's a filmmaker, he's a writer, and also the author. This is the, the key right now is remember, he is the author of The Sound of Violet. You can learn more at thesoundofviolet.com. You can learn more about Alan Wolf at alanwolf.com. I do encourage you to follow the link to his podcast. It is really entertaining. It's great. It's called Navigating Hollywood. Yes. Thank you, Alan, for joining the Autistic Me podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I had a great time. Great to talk with you. All right. I hope you enjoyed that conversation. If you work in entertainment, be sure to check out the complimentary courses and other resources available at navigatinghollywood.org. There are courses for pre-marriage and marriage and the Alpha Hollywood course, which gives entertainment professionals the chance to explore faith while building community. You can find out more at navigatinghollywood.org. Please follow us and leave us a review so others can discover this podcast. You can find our other shows, transcripts, links, and more at navigatinghollywood.org. I look forward to being with you next time.